0: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, May 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with the initiative process dead, organizers of a recent citizen-fueled effort to expand Medicaid suspend their campaign. And we look at how one study estimates how expansion could boost Mississippi's economy with nearly... 22,000 new jobs. Then, one week following the approval of the Pfizer vaccine for 12- to 15-year-olds, we check in with the state's leading pediatrician on how families are responding. Plus, in today's book club, we revisit a Pulitzer Prize winner's stories from the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Less than a month since Healthcare for Mississippi officially launched its campaign to put Medicaid expansion on the ballot, the campaign is coming to a grinding halt. Yesterday, the group announced it's reluctantly suspending its campaign until there is once again a functional ballot measure process in Mississippi. The citizen initiative process, ratified in 1992, was deemed unconstitutional by the Mississippi Supreme Court last week. Members of the group included the Mississippi Mississippi Hospital Association, leading health providers and the Mississippi chapter of the NAACP. Corey Wiggins, executive director for the Mississippi NAACP, says the organization has long supported the expansion of Medicaid and joined other advocates after elected officials neglected to act for years. He tells our Ashley Norwood expansion could help nearly a quarter million Mississippians.
3: You would
1: have almost 200,000 Mississippians who are hardworking folks supporting their families across the state would we'll be able to get health insurance. So many families across our state right now uh, uh, are at risk of being bankrupt because of medical bills, or at risk, are working jobs that may or, that may not uh, provide health insurance, uh, and so, and not only from the aspect of our citizens. When you think about so many rural communities over the past couple of years who have lost or had rural hospitals closed down on them, ERs closed down on them. And these hospitals who are really the fabric of the economy in these rural communities really need expansion and support them to help them stay, remain vibrant in their communities.
0: Can you talk to me about um, what that conversation was like making the decision to suspend and what's the reason behind that?
1: Yeah, well, ultimately, uh, as we all know, the Supreme Court uh, ruled last week, uh, ruling effectively making uh, the ballot process, uh, or the process for citizens to vote, uh, and to speak their voice on the issues that matter to them, invalid. Uh, and what we were attempting to do was uh, really aim toward allowing citizens, allowing everyday Mississippians to actually vote on this issue, on healthcare access, but through a technical sort of ruling related to another initiative, the medical marijuana initiative to Mississippi Supreme Court and validated uh, not only those voters who voted to support medical marijuana, but removed uh, a process for around issues for Mississippians in the future to be able to vote on issues that matter to them, like Medicaid expansion.
0: So like, what is this moment Mean to uh, those who have worked on Initiative Seventy Six, those thousands of Mississippians who could benefit and rural communities who could be- benefit. What does this mean? What does this moment even feel like?
1: Well, I mean, I think we're at a moment, uh, whether it's for 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 people who are who are right now who don't have access to health care that Medicaid expansion can support uh, and can help uh, for those families who. who Know what it's feel like uh, to be bankrupt because of medical bills because they don't have quality or uh, health insurance, right? Uh, I think that our elected officials have to answer to them. Um, we we've seen inaction on our state legislature, our, our our leadership to listen to hear to make sure that they're making policies to support working Mississippians. Uh, I think for folks who continue to work on this issue and care about this issue, understand that look. Our state legislature still has an an opportunity. Uh, When when our lawmakers come back uh, into session in January of of early next year, they have the opportunity uh, to make sure that that citizens across the state have health insurance by expanding Medicaid. The reason that we went to the ballot on this issue, because they failed to act. And we're just hoping by this campaign, right, the the folks who came together in coalition across the state, uh, the thousands of people who this would benefit, the hospitals, that the rural hospitals this would benefit, uh, would be impetus for our state legislature to take action.
0: All right, Corey Wiggins, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you.
1: I appreciate you, and thank you.
0: Governor Tate Reeves has long said he opposes any expansion effort, often citing the cost to the state of Mississippi as a deterrent. Advocates say the infusion of billions of dollars could help both the state's vulnerable rural hospitals as well as the greater economy. A study released today from the Commonwealth Fund and George Washington University's Milken Institute School of Public Health estimates expansion could bring nearly 22,000 new jobs to the state. Layton Koo is the director of the Center for Health Policy at the university. He explains the economic growth potential with MPB's Rob Lane.
4: First, it will go into health care providers. But what most healthcare care providers do is uh, half or more of that money goes to pay the salaries for nurses, doctors, pharmacists, medical staff, etc. And what happens at that point when it goes into people's salaries Uh, they do what you and I do when we have more money. We use it to pay our rent or mortgage. We use it to buy groceries. We use it for whatever purposes. uh, As I periodically say, people, you know, because of vaccinations, things people are feeling a little freer about travel, they may decide, uh, gee, maybe I can afford to have a trip to, to Disney World this year. Because of that, what we find is that a little more than half that money would go into healthcare and the other half would go into all the other sorts of fields in in the state, whether it's construction, retail, finance, you name it, all sorts of different fields. And it ripples throughout the state. So that would make a big difference. Uh, The last data that I have is Mississippi uh, still has a pretty high uh, unemployment rate. So Mississippi is still hurting economically. So that's why... I'd like to hope that Mississippi legislators uh, will be open to the idea of Medicaid expansion. Uh, I realize that it hasn't done so so far, that there are still strong objections from you know, some members of the legislature and probably even the governor, uh, and I'd hope that they take, take a chance to reconsider, given the situation that the state is in right now, and to take advantage of this new opportunity.
3: Now, of course, on paper, job growth is good, but it's not necessarily going to make a huge difference in the lives of Mississippians unless the new jobs are these sort of so-called good jobs that pay a living wage. Is there anything you can project about the specific nature of the kinds of jobs that are going to be created or that could be created, excuse me, by expansion in Mississippi?
4: Well, I mean, are they all going to be, you know, jobs that pay $100,000 as, you know, sort of executives, as high-level computer programmers, et cetera. I can't say that. But, you know, it will be in diverse fields. The income will, you know, accrue to uh, people's pockets. And so they're not all going to necessarily be, you know, the high-paying jobs, some of them because they will be retail jobs. It may mean that there will be some more people who will be hired as, uh, you know, grocery store clerks. Uh, in Mississippi, on the other hand, you know, some of them will be in construction. Construction is usually a pretty good-paying field. Uh, we estimated jobs in finance and insurance. Those are usually relatively good-paying jobs. So it will be across the board. Uh, and, and, again, there will be a growth in the state economy that is substantial, and there will be uh, some additional money that's sitting in people's pocketbooks and, typically speaking, Voters are grateful when that happens.
3: A number of rural hospitals in Mississippi have closed over the past few years or are in imminent risk of closing right now. Could Medicaid expansion save those hospitals? And more broadly, what does Medicaid expansion potentially imply for those hospitals, bottom line?
4: So Medicaid expansion uh, can't be the difference between surviving and not surviving for many of these rural hospitals. Rural hospitals across the South have been taking a beating in recent years. And much of the reason is because rural house and rural areas, a number of people are often uninsured. And so they're uninsured and they still get care. The hospitals are saddled with uncompensated care burdens. And so basically they lose money. So this is creating a problem for those hospitals. If more people, so if, uh, you know, thousands more people uh, get health insurance in Mississippi, then these uncompensated care cases will be turned into paying patients. And so that will help rural hospitals increase their incomes, increase their ability to stay solvent. Uh, so it could make a difference.
3: Dr. Leighton Koo is the director of the Center for Health Policy Research at George Washington University. Dr. Koo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking with me.
0: Coming up, one week following the approval of the Pfizer vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds, we check in with the state's leading pediatrician on how families are responding. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: I'm Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown teens in mississippi are starting to get the pfizer coronavirus vaccine Children ages 12 to 15 became eligible to receive the shot last week. And since then, more than a 1,000 Mississippi teens and preteens have received their first dose. Dr. Anita Henderson, president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, tells our Kobe Vance she and other pediatricians are talking with teens and parents who are interested in getting vaccinated.
5: For the last week, pediatricians throughout the state have been talking with their parents and their patients about the benefits of these vaccines. I have seen a lot of interest from my young adolescents about getting vaccinated. They really want school to be back to normal this fall. They are not hesitant or afraid of getting a shot. Their parents do want more information in some situations. And so sometimes we have to have that discussion but when you really look at the benefits of getting a vaccine versus any risk, the majority of the children are on board.
6: How can parents begin the conversation with their teens about uh, the vaccine or vice versa with teens you know coming up to their parents and starting a conversation with them?
5: Parents um, who have been vaccinated and are comfortable with the vaccine obviously are um, talking more with their children about it. Parents who have children who may be high risk, their child may have asthma, diabetes, sickle cell, um, obesity, other situations that put them at high risk, they have been waiting for the day to get vaccinated. So they are actively discussing it. Um, And then parents of children who have heard about it at school, the kids are coming to the parents to talk about it. So I think in some situations it's a parent talking to a child In other situations, we know our our teenagers, our adolescents are very active on social media. They're very um, tuned in to what's happening in the world. So they are getting their information and taking it back to their parents. So I think it's happening um, in both directions.
6: As of Tuesday, um, the Department of Health had reported that around 1,158 kids had been, our teens had been vaccinated in that um, 12 to 15 age group. Um, Do you think that's been a good uptake within that first week?
5: I think it's a good start. Um, Some of the challenges that pediatric offices have seen have been just the supply side, the cold storage, and the planning and implementation. So I think as we move forward, now that kids are getting out of school and now that we have a little more information on how to handle the coronavirus vaccine, I think we will see – that number continues to go up. Um, The Department of Health has guidelines on how pediatricians can order the vaccine. Um, And so the pediatricians who are ordering have to uh, prove that they are able to maintain that cold storage before they get their vaccine. So there's some supply side um, dynamics that are in place right now. As we move forward, I think you'll see pediatric offices offering more and more COVID vaccine this summer.
6: As we have gotten a week into this, uh, this you know, EUA, um, have you noticed any things that um, make, make vaccinating this age group a lot different than other age groups? Are there any hurdles that have shown their heads that maybe uh, were not anticipated?
5: There are always myths around vaccines, and COVID vaccine is no different. So we are trying to dispel those myths that are out there, and we are trying to educate the public One of the things we did um, as pediatricians, family classes, doctors last week was release a letter explaining why we recommend this vaccine for our children. And one of the things we want parents to understand is that those of us who have teenagers and young adults have vaccinated our own children. So we feel that the myths, um, the disinformation out there, the misinformation out there, we want to overcome that by explaining the fact that we believe they're safe and effective and we feel they're safe and effective for our own children so we would never recommend anything to our patients that we do not 100 percent agree with
6: now last week dr dobbs was mentioning that the state um, desperately needs this in his work the state desperately needs more single dose vaccine options uh, to get to uh, that are easier to distribute and as well as get to you know smaller providers you know what? What are your thoughts on uh, the need to keep down that road and get other vaccines eligible for uh, emergency use in this age group?
5: The single dose file or the single dose option would be a huge benefit for small pediatric offices. The majority of our pediatric vaccines do come as single dose um, vaccines. It makes it much easier to administer, makes it much easier to plan, and much easier to order. So if we could get these COVID vaccines in single-dose um, allotments, that would be fantastic. Um, I think that that is something that hopefully will be coming down the pike. I don't know the timeline on that, but at some point, having a COVID vaccine in a single-dose option would be very beneficial for all pediatric practices.
6: And. I'm- so where do you think we're going to be going from here? Do you think we're going to start to see a, a rise in vaccines as more teens you know, get the vaccine and share the news with their friends?
5: I hope so. I really hope that our adolescents and our teenagers, once they're vaccinated, will see it, it wasn't a big deal. It felt like any other booster shot. They will see the benefits. They will see the summer and the fall becoming more normal. And so I would hope that they would then encourage their friends to get vaccinated so that they could have sleepovers, so they could have camps, so they could have all the activities with their parents and grandparents and their relatives, all the things they missed out this last year. So I'm really hopeful that the word will get out um, that this vaccine is, is not that hard. It's not a big deal. Um, it's safe and effective, and it's available at your pediatric office.
6: Dr. Anita Henderson is president of the Mississippi Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Henderson, thank you for joining us today.
5: Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Coming up in today's book club, we revisit a Pulitzer Prize winner's stories from the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker.
5: Slowly, we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll
2: stop traffic, grab one out of the road.
5: And then our friends found out, and our vet would call us.
2: Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker.
5: We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue.
2: You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio, or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast.
0: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Rick Bragg is a journalist, a novelist, and a college professor, but is probably best known for his reflective nonfiction about life itself. The Pulitzer Prize winner and best-selling author gathered a collection of his columns from Southern Living and Garden and Gun to put together Where I Come From, Stories from the Deep South. Our conversation starts with his musings on what's unique about the South.
2: Well, it's the heat. You know, people say that all the time. Well, that's you not, know, Yeah, that ain't it. There's all kind of tragedies in the world, and some tragedies are contained by the walls of a wood frame house. Things that go on in that house are the things that can be the most awful to us, the most personal. So my experiences as a blue-collar southerner are much different from those of the veranda southerner, the ones who sit around thinking to themselves, I wonder if my riding boots have been polished. That's not the kind of southerner that I am. But... I do believe there is an understanding of loss. A lot of people love to point to the Civil War, but there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. A lot of people point to the Civil Rights Movement, but there's a lot more to it than that. My people were defined by the Great Depression. My mother's baby sister died of a thing as simple as diarrhea because there's no doctors and there's no money. There is, I think, in the heat and the pines and the racism and the battle against that racism and the wars, I think there is a sense of pathos and loss and anger over it instead of a Zen-like attitude. You know, we're, we're an angry people down here despite the heat.
0: Before you go on, I just want to, because we're, you were going pretty dark there, but let's just come back to this book because it is funny. Funny, funny, laugh out loud, funny. I,
2: I hope so. I wrote a line the other day, not in this book but in another one, about tent revivals. I remember you know, going to those tent revivals. You know, just imagine that for a kid. I mean, it was just misery. The seats would be still hot from where they were stacked up on the flatbed truck. But the thing I remember is that there was always a big, giant, sweating igloo cooler of ice water for the people in the tent, and not one cup. If that doesn't sum up the Pentecostal experience for a six-year-old boy in Alabama in 1965, I don't know what does.
0: Lots of southern things in here, like alligators and po boys and ghosts, especially when they're Confederate soldiers, which everybody yeah knows. Yeah, everybody it, it always
2: about. made me mad that rich people had the ghosts. <laughs> Why do just rich people have the ghosts? There's always a weeping Southern belle on her way to the cotillion, standing on the veranda, supposedly scaring people. The rich folks have got a ghost. Well, where is the ghost of like the the mobile home? You know? I don't know one human being who lives in a double wide who is saying to themselves right now, You need to come out here. We <laughs> we we gotta hate. That ain't never happened.
0: Oh, and the importance of a pocket knife.
2: My brother Sam gave me a bone handled, plain old, probably about three and a half inches long, closed but made out of a yellowed bone handle, so you know it's old. Stainless steel, nothing fancy, razor sharp, single-bladed pocket knife. And it's razor sharp because he knows how to sharpen a knife. I pick it up, and it literally feels good in my hand. I mean, it feels maybe the way somebody of a different time would have felt a pocket watch. But I pick it up, and it, takes me back to these old men who they would have no more walked out of the house without a pocket knife in their pocket than they would without their pants. Uh, A serious man had to have a pocket knife. A man who was not serious rode around without a jack in the trunk, without a good spare, without a toolbox. But mostly he had to have a pocket knife. I guess writing about things like that are just, it's certainly a way to keep people who have gone on close. My brother and I will say sometimes to each other, Can I borrow your knife? You might have one in your own pocket, but it's just, it's to make sure that everything is okay. It holds us to a time and a place and just good memories.
0: Rick Bragg is a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, a James Beard Award winner, a best selling author and the author of Where I Come From, Stories from the Deep South. Rick, thanks so much.
2: No, this was a great pleasure. It's fine.
0: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.